The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, welcome back to week five. I know in our busy lives it's not easy to stick to these things, even the classes or the whatever that feel really useful in our lives. It's funny how events and circumstances tend to intervene. But like so many things in life, if we don't give the practice a little momentum, don't really check it out, we're likely to just drop it. And that's okay, because hopefully if conditions are right, you'll cycle back to the practice, you'll find a way back, maybe not at common ground, but maybe somewhere else. But if you can, right, I mean, just with a lot of respect about how difficult it is to change your habits in life, But if you can get enough of a taste of what mindfulness practice has to offer, you just might be willing to create a new habit, right? Right? A habit that kind of builds on itself, moving in the direction of becoming more and more present, more and more mindful, more and more wise, and more and more kind. So usually in week five, I talk about loving-kindness practice Because that quality of kindness and just the basic goodness of the heart, it's really, as you're probably sensing, it's an essential ingredient. Like it's not actually possible for us to connect with the present moment, any particular moment. You have knee pain, so connecting with the sensations of the knee pain. Or you have an emotional feeling, connecting with the emotion or you're having an interaction with another human being, or you're dealing with your pet, or your child, or whatever it might be, in order to really connect with any moment of life, we need to be undefended, right? We need to include things as they are. Well, that's pretty much a perfect definition of love. Love is that quality of mind that can connect, that knows how to be close. In fact, in the Buddhist tradition, they have this really nice definition or explanation of the quality of metta. You might see that word, M-E-T-T-A, and it just means friendliness, that basic goodness. Often nowadays, it gets translated as loving kindness, but it's very simple and very natural quality of the heart. Everyone, we all have this capacity for metta. But metta, you know, the trouble with words like love or even kindness is, you know, there's just a lot of baggage. We, you know, we have certain expectations of that word. And often it correlates with being attached to someone because they're my son or my partner or my family member. So but that's attachment. Real love, real kindness, that basic goodness, it doesn't really matter, right? It's like a generosity of the heart. It doesn't matter if we know the person or doesn't know the person. I mean, we may more easily recognize it when we're around somebody we know, especially if the relationship is simple. You go home, you see your cat or you see your dog, 
the kind of emotional quality you have with your pet might be relatively pure. Or you see a cardinal at your bird feeder. You know, that may be relatively unconditional. And you may have a partner that, you know, you're totally devoted to, but your love is not so pure. It's, you know, it's complicated, right? Because there's hurt feelings and there's expectations. There's a lot of baggage. There may be that, there probably is that pure quality there, but on the surface it's much more complicated, right? So often if we, if we want to get a sense of what loving kindness or metta is pointing to, it's useful to start, for some, starting with yourself, your own, like we did tonight, just your own, the heart's capacity to care about this life, knowing that it isn't easy being a human being, knowing that we're doing the best we can being a human being, right? Just that, I mean, isn't that relatively close for us most of the time? I mean, maybe not right in this moment. Maybe you have a lot of shame or a lot of self-hatred. But for most of us, most of the time, we can get some basic flavor of that basic goodness by recognizing, you know, I do care about this life. I care enough. Like, if we really do care, we're willing to act on that goodness. Like, I care enough to be close, to actually feel what I'm feeling, to see what's here and the experience of this life right now. Not only that, I care enough about this life, as silly as it might seem doing it out loud, I care about this life enough to wish well. May my heart be happy. I mean, there's nothing silly about that or weird about having that simple, generous wish. And I, like, I know I don't know if my life will be happy, right? But in this moment, it's not that hard for me now to connect with that natural generosity of the heart that actually wishes my life well, wishes me well. And then it's a relatively easy step to recognize, oh, you're a human being too. You have a body, you have a life, you have complications, you have joys and sorrows. May you be safe, may you be happy. May you find your way through life with ease, right? So that there's a kind of, when you do tune in to metta or this spiritual love or kindness or whatever. Don't make it too kind of frilly or sentimental or abstract. It's very, it's real, right? It's an actual capacity here and now that we're trying to uncover. So a lot of the uncovering means stripping away superficiality and sentimentality and all the ideas we might have about you know, beaming rays of pure love. It's really just, uh, like I said earlier, that willingness to be close. So the image they use in the tradition for metta is like water can fill any vessel, no matter the particular quirky shape, like some of the vases or some of the glasses, you know, might be kind of strangely shaped. But water doesn't have any problem filling the vessel, whatever the shape of that vessel is. And so that image is used in, in the tradition 
so that love, the very essence of that goodness of heart, it's the quality that knows how to connect any moment of our life, no matter how complicated or weird or simple the moment is, whether you're looking at a cardinal at the bird feeder or having a very difficult conversation with your partner or, you know, bumping horns with someone you don't even know. But that generous quality, that good and generous quality of the heart, it knows how to be real, right? It knows how to just connect. That's what that quality is. So when you feel that quality now, because you've heard this little talk, you'll know, okay, oh, that's metta. That's that spiritual goodness that is available, right? And, you know, in a way, it's, we think about it as something like, okay, there's some special place in my heart that has this goodness. But in Buddhism, you know, the Buddha was a real master at psychology. I mean, just having studied his own mind. And what he discovered that this goodness of the heart is much more about what's not there than what is there. So instead of like looking for that special place, like I used the image during the guided sit tonight of you know that warm, serene smile there in the heart, the heart that is generous and warm and radiant and smiling and happy. And but really, when <coughs> what we find is that goodness is there when fear and aversion has dropped away. It's kind of, I know it doesn't sound so grand, but it's sort of what's left when all the habits of greed and aversion and fear and resentment and betrayal, when the mind isn't entangled, caught up in those qualities, then what you'll notice is a very natural capacity to connect, to be intimate, to accept, to be patient, to be forgiving, to be appreciative, to be equanimous, to be real, you know, to be loving. These are, this is sort of the very nature of the mind or the heart, so it doesn't have to be something you or I do in a way that and it contaminates love, like when I'm trying to be generous or I'm trying to be patient or I'm trying to be kind, you know? Like, do you like it when people are around you trying to be kind, trying to be compassionate? I mean, generally, we don't like it. It's like, it's like it doesn't feel real or it just feels like you're trying to be somebody. But when, when somebody's just there without any aversion or any fear or any neurotic need to be seen in any way whatsoever, that's kind of nice to be around those people, right? doesn't feel like their being the way they are is an intrusion or something we have to manage or something we need to push away. It feels really nice. So real love is seen because that, the very definition, at least as I'm giving it, is love knows how to show up. It knows how to respond appropriately. It knows how to fit the moment, right? That's how we know we're in that place. And so that's what we practice. And you see, given that definition of love, how 
important it is for mindfulness practice because that's what mindfulness is too. So in this realm of practice, compassion or love and mindful awareness, they're not like different things. Now the techniques are different, you know, and like you saw, we were doing awareness practice for the first 20 minutes and the last 10 minutes I did a little guided reflection on loving-kindness practice. So as a formal meditation practice, we're still practicing being mindful, but remember I talked, uh, I think last week or even a couple weeks now, I talked about the difference between directed meditation practices at one end of the spectrum and non-directed meditation or open awareness practice at the other end of the spectrum, right? So as you might guess, Loving-kindness, compassion practice, appreciative joy practice, these different flavors of love, that's a directed meditation. So we're still being mindful, but here we're strategically being mindful of only one emotional quality. And when the mind wanders to other objects of experience, we keep directing the attention toward however faint it might be, however weak and feeble the metta, the loving kindness, the compassion, or whatever particular flavor of love you're working on as your main theme, your meditation object, we keep redirecting the attention back to it. And we're quite happy, if we need them, to bring in memory, to bring in a mental image, to bring in words, right? Anything that helps aim the attention at the actual present moment experience of friendliness or love or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity. Even equanimity is considered a quality of love. It's one of the four beautiful emotions of love. Right? There's basic friendliness, metta, compassion. The word is karuna, not that you need to memorize the Pali words. And then appreciative joy, appreciating what's beautiful, Gratitude, these qualities, that's mudita. And then there's equanimity, upeka. Right? So these are the four emotions of love. Basic friendliness, basic goodness. But when that basic goodness meets suffering, it's compassion. When that basic goodness meets beauty and success and happiness of others, it's appreciative joy. And when that basic goodness meets an ambiguous, confusing situation... It's equanimity. That's what love looks like when you don't know what the heck's going on. Like, is this person a jerk or are they just confused? And you know, it's like, well, I'll be intimate with equanimity. I don't know what's going on and that's okay. Right? So if, you're <coughs> if your mind or your heart ha- has developed a lot of confidence and skill, a lot of momentum in these four emotions, you don't, need any other emotion to get through life as a competent human being. Can you imagine that? Only, you know, as you navigate all the beautiful and difficult moments of your life, all the twists and turns, and you only had four emotions. Equanimity, appreciative joy, compassion, and a basic friendliness. Could you do it? Yeah, it'd probably be a pretty nice life. (laughs) Because all of these emotions feel pretty good. You know, when, when the mind is grounded, is sort of coming out of that frame, that view, that emotion, it feels good. So that's another 
reason why it's so supportive for awareness practice because what are we basically doing as we cultivate this momentum of mindful awareness, present moment awareness? We're becoming more and more sensitive to our life and and this world. And this life in this world is at the very least complicated and often messy and at times really horrific. I mean, I know other times it's beautiful, our lives, but sometimes it's really horrific. So if we're developing this greater and greater sensitivity and continuity of present moment awareness, what is going to support us in the exposure that is just naturally going to happen as we become more present? Well, these four emotions. That's why they're so essential to develop in tandem with awareness practice. And you'll see, maybe you're already getting a sense of how much more sensitive you become as you practice loving kindness. Or I'm sorry, as you practice mindful awareness. And you'll see that the only way to stay stable and fearless is to connect. Because the more we run and the more we control and the more we distract ourselves, it's like that's what makes the monsters in our life monsters. How do we know it's a monster? Because we're denying it. We're running from it. We're distracting ourselves. We're suppressing it, right? We're controlling it. But love knows how to connect, even with really difficult or ambiguous, whatever, horrific moments in our life. Love knows, oh, this is really hard for me, for you probably too, and I care about it. I care with compassion, right? I care enough to acknowledge that this isn't easy for me and probably for you. And I care, and I care. And you see, that's how we stay aware, present, with what we feel, what's moving, what's happening, how it is, this is being known. It's the only way to stay real and present. We'll do a little bit more before we leave at 9, but we have 25 minutes, so... Maybe we'll save 10 or 15 to do some practice. But that leaves us about 10 or 15 for questions you might have. And of course, anything goes. So it doesn't have to be about loving-kindness practice. Things you've learned, it would be nice to share with the group if you're having some insights about your mind, about the practice from what you've been doing at home or the practice tonight, or questions about what I've just said, or anything that seems relevant to what we've been doing these last five weeks. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. Who would like to begin? Yeah, Kermit, please. I'm going to pass it behind you. Thank you. Um, You know, sometimes when I'm sitting here and everybody else is sitting here like uh, perfect Buddhas, um, I feel like the worst meditator in the world. my mind will beat me up with worries and planning about some big things in my life. And um, But last um, Friday at your meta practice here, Mark, I, um, I had this notion that um, the meta could be applied toward, directed toward the thinking mind that has, has the need to always do that. I mean, surely that mind must be afflicted to want to do that. 
and I'm wondering if I'm onto something and how I can structure that and no, just need a little help need a little help with that. Yeah, no, no, that sounds exactly right. And there's a lot of creativity involved in the loving kindness practices. Like I mentioned, you can use image and memory and words because you're directing your attention, you're trying to keep the emotion in mind. And whatever you need to do to do it is great. And basically the most efficient way to keep these wholesome emotions in mind is to use something that's real. So if your mind is sort of acting out in ways that are causing stress right now in your mind, then to look at that with compassion in the same way if you were at the bus station or in the Mall of America and there was somebody with mental illness sort of you know, doing some, acting out some kind of stressful, obsessive behavior, our heart would naturally open. Or, you know, you see uh, a squirrel having been hit by a car, quivering on the side of the street. You don't have to, like, try to be compassionate. The heart just opens when we... So if we can look at our mind in an objective way, like see that mind chasing its own tail obsessing about things it doesn't need to obsess about, being controlling in ways that aren't helpful, it will break. If you see it honestly, it will break your heart wide open. Oh, honey, this isn't helping. I, I care about how stressful this is. I care about how unproductive this is. May this heart be free of this kind of stress. We may not know the way, but that wish is still sincere. Even if we don't know like where the off button is or how to stop the mind from sp- spinning its wheels, you know? But that generous feeling of, oh honey, may we be free from these patterns. So that's not an oppressive, judgmental, you better stop or else. It's a way to get close. That's what it looks like when we see the mind doing something unproductive like that. That's what comes up. Oh, honey, I wish it weren't this way. But it is this way, and I care about it. I care about what this feels like. May we be free of the stress. May wisdom and love protect me always. That's an authentic wish for most of us in that kind of situation. And it's so much better than hating ourselves for thinking in ways that, are, that isn't helpful, right? Or just getting lost and doing it again. Neither of those two options are going to be helpful. But having a few moments... And then the other thing about bringing compassion in in a moment like that, Kermit, is it really stabilizes the body and the mind. So it's a lot more easy to honestly recognize how painful how stressful that mental pattern is because that's what really breaks the cycle you know i mentioned i think a couple weeks ago like if you know you're holding a hot pan you let go so it's the same thing just more subtle if we're involved in a mental pattern that isn't helpful we only continue it because we don't actually see how unproductive it is how stressful it is and we don't see how stressful it is because the mind doesn't know how to be close. The mind only knows how to distract itself, deny it, control it, but it doesn't. You can't be trying to fix it and be close at the same time. So if you're able to get really close to a stressful pattern, an unproductive stressful pattern, 
you'll really see how painful that is. And in seeing that, you get closer to the mind not doing that again, or at least not doing it as much. You know, you start to weaken the pattern. It's true with any addiction. So not just the addiction to thinking in obsessive ways, but addiction to drugs, addiction to eating too much or not enough or eating the wrong kind of foods or sexual addictions or any kind of neurotic repeated pattern that we get stuck in. If it's actually unskillful, it means it hurts. And if we can be really intimate with that it hurts, then it's become more and more natural not to go there, not to do that. But as long as we avoid feeling what things feel like, we, as we all know with our addictive patterns, we can stick with patterns for a long time. Yeah, thanks, Kermit, for bringing that up. What else have you been learning during the weeks? Yeah, please, you want to pass the mic all the way over here? My name is Pam. First, a question. You've been meditating for 20, 30 years? About 35, yeah. So at this point in your practice, when you sit, do you get to the point where your mind is totally quiet, or are you always batting away, noticing, letting thoughts go? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Uh, Sometimes my mind quiets down. (laughs) But at those times when my mind doesn't quiet down, there's a, a kind of peace that in a way is synonymous with wisdom in the mind, right? So not, not something the mind constructs, something that's there that's peaceful and wise that doesn't have much problem with the other mental activity of worrying or planning or this or that. So another way to say that, that they're more almost always, I can notice, the mind notices this background of peace and wisdom, right? So even if for whatever reason, things have triggered neurotic patterns, addictive patterns, defensive patterns, greedy patterns, fearful patterns, the awareness also reveals that there's kind of this space of wisdom that knows it's like this and knows that it's okay that it's like this. That the mind, the conditioned mind or the habit-based mind is the way that it is. So there's sort of two kinds of peace that come up in practice. One is peace that's more accessible, that is more usually um, talked about in terms of the mind getting concentrated or the mind, you know, being still or there's not that much going on, right? And that's generally more accessible, right? People, even people who don't meditate touch that space from time to time when they're like just doing the dishes or dancing and they're just into the dancing and for a few moments, (coughs) excuse me, their mind has ceased worrying, planning, wondering, Right? They're just in the activity, in the flow of the activity. But in that, there's a lot of peace because the normal neurotic activity has been suppressed or is temporarily not active in the mind. So the mind experienced the relative absence of that neurotic activity. So that's the 
peace that we experience with samadhi is the Pali word, or whenever the latent tendencies to be neurotic have been suppressed or put aside for a while. Wisdom is a, a more resonant kind of peace because this peace doesn't depend on any particular moment or any particular state of mind. It's this momentum of understanding, this way of understanding that understands that any neurotic activity or any physical pain or any obnoxious or pleasant sound, it's just what it is. It's just something being known. And subjectively, that's experienced as having a lot of space, like so that nothing seems that overwhelming. Everything seems workable. It doesn't mean that people forget like the difference between what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. It's just okay if it's pleasant or okay if it's unpleasant, right? They're not, there doesn't seem to be somebody who's so concerned because the mind knows that things will change anyway and that that's just really what life is, is a tumbling through pleasant moments and unpleasant moments and neutral moments and pleasant moments and unpleasant moments, and, Right? And the wisdom understand, and that's okay that it's that way. It's just stuff happening. This stuff happens in a conditional or lawful way, and it's okay to be okay with it, as opposed to I want to be reactive, I want to be in control. It's about my life. I got to bend the world to my will, make it the way I want it to be. Right. So it's the realizing the limitations of living through self-centered dramas and realizing the possibility of living with the renunciation of self-centered dramas. Those dramas may still play out because there's a lot of momentum to that self-centered thinking, but now the wisdom is there knowing that's just what it is and I don't need to be for it or against it. Great, time for one more comment or question, if there's... Yeah, please. Um, you talked a bit about love. Maybe a little closer. You talked a little bit about love. So how, how do I know what love is if it's something I haven't experienced in my life, just as a theoretical? Yeah, well, the first thing in order to get to know what love is is to really notice you have an authentic interest, Right? to know what that is, right? It seems relevant, doesn't it? I mean, all of us, that's just you. Doesn't it seem like, do I know what love is? Spiritual love, real love, do I know what that is? And both, you know, we're not picky, like maybe from our memory some moment, because, you know, we can learn by revisiting previous experience. We have to train the mind to remember as honestly as possible, was that love? Or was that attachment? You know, was that compassion or was that pity? Was that appreciative joy or me just sort of tripping on exuberance? Right? Because there are things that we might call love but aren't really love. They're not uh, kind of naturally generous. They often are lo- what we would call love involves a self-centered drama of some kind. But what's love without the self-centered drama? What's the intimacy and the responsiveness that love and compassion have without the self-centered drama? And then just once you 
have cultivated, once you see the interest, so now you still don't know what love is, but you know honestly that you're interested in knowing what love is. And then just continue to observe your mind and heart as you live your life. And you'll, you know, you're just, oh, is this love? I mean, you won't say it out loud because people will think you're weird. <laughs> but you'll just be interested. Like, is this love? What's, what, you know, you're there petting your cat. And you can ask, like, well, is there any... Because remember, it's more about what's not there, right? So is there any aversion at all in the mind and heart right now? Like, is this a moment where there's no aversion? Right? And that, that will be a telltale sign. Does it have that expansive quality? Like one of the characteristics is the absence of aversion, which also means absence of fear, absence of needing to control it, right? And the other is it has kind of a natural expansion. It's, uh, in Buddhism, in the tradition, we say it's boundless or immeasurable, meaning once you kind of, once the heart or mind has tapped in to this ordinary, real emotion, of love, it just naturally wants to include more and more. Go out. Does it? It's not limited. Like it's just between me and you, my you know, my kitty. And but but you know the cat next door or my partner over there or the house plants or you know whatever. No, you know I only have as much love to kind of go to you. <laughs> that's just that's not the quality of real love, right? It's just it's like it is because it isn't actually about the cat. It's about the generosity to the heart. And the cat just happens to be there to sort of be the recipient. But actually, and that's the third quality, is you see it isn't about the object that's being loved. It's like this generosity of the heart, this goodness of the heart that just wants to go out, willing to connect, willing to see things as they are, and not afraid of being close or being intimate with whatever's happening. So next week you can report back what you find. <laughs> Good, and let's do a little bit for the last 10 minutes. So maybe just stretch out your legs. And this time we'll do a more body-based loving-kindness practice. And you can experiment. And remember, there are handouts. So if, uh, and you can re-listen to the talk, of course. Um, but also you can find that handout on loving-kindness practice. It would be under week five. And if you don't know where to find the handouts, check in with me at the end of the class. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.